Courage is about having fear and going ahead anyway. Now, interestingly, what the research very clearly shows is that people who do not acknowledge their fear, people who reject their fear, saying something, you know, to the tune of, I, I shouldn't be fearful, you know, I'm strong, I, you know, very often it's associated with uh, masculine traits, you know, me afraid, of course not. People who reject fear are actually less likely to act courageously. And the paradox is that people who accept fear and see it, okay, it's natural. It's a human characteristic who give themselves the permission to be human. They're much more likely to act courageously, to take the fear along with them and act as they deem most appropriate. Welcome to The Courageous Life, a podcast founded on the idea that taking risks, overcoming fears, and moving beyond the limits of our comfort zones are prerequisites for living meaningful and fulfilling lives. I'm your host, Joshua Steinfeld, and it's my mission to explore insights, practical strategies, and inspiring stories of everyday heroes that will empower more people to grow courage and awaken greatness. For some of you, today's guest may need no introduction. He's written a number of wildly popular books on the topic of happiness and living a more meaningful life. He also taught two of the most popular classes in the history of Harvard University, including one on the science of happiness. I've wanted to have Tal Ben-Shahar on the show for quite a long time. His work has had such a tremendous impact on my life. And I would say his book, Happier, was actually one of the reasons why I ultimately ended up going to graduate school to study positive psychology. In today's conversation, Tal and I will explore the topic of perfectionism. We'll talk about some of the benefits of perfectionism, but we'll also explore how to work with this tendency more skillfully through the process of acceptance. Tal's approach to perfectionism that he outlines in his book, Pursuit of Perfect, is something that really resonated with me. And if you're like me and have ever had any struggles with perfectionism in any areas of your life, then I think that you may find today's conversation both insightful and practical. In addition to talking about working with perfectionism and moving toward an approach to life that Tal calls optimalism, we'll also explore how Tal has dealt with perfectionism in his own life, including as a world-class athlete. I was also really curious to learn more about Tal's approach to public speaking. Since he taught some of the most popular classes in Harvard's history, I wanted to find out more about how he looks at teaching, how he prepares, and specifically how he thinks about connecting with his audience. There's a lot in this conversation, so I would encourage you to pause at points taking time to reflect, or even to jot down notes of things you might want to come back to later. I've also created show notes for this episode, as always, which you can find at www.joshuasteinfeld.com forward slash podcast. Now, for anyone who's not familiar with Tal Ben-Shahar, here's a little bit more of a formal background. Tal Ben-Shahar is an author and lecturer he taught two of the largest classes in Harvard University's history, positive psychology and the psychology of leadership. Today, 
Tao consults and lectures around the world to executives and multinational corporations, the general public, and at-risk populations. The topics he lectures on include leadership, happiness, education, innovation, ethics, self-esteem, resilience, goal-setting, and mindfulness. His books have been translated into more than 25 languages and have appeared on bestseller lists around the world. Tal is a serial entrepreneur and is the co-founder and chief learning officer of Happiness Studies Academy, Potential Life, Mative, and Happier.tv. An avid sportsman, Tal won the U.S. Intercollegiate and Israeli National Squash Championships. For more on Tal, please visit talbenshahar.com. That's T-A-L-B-E-N-S-H-A-H-A-R.com. All right, that's about enough of an intro from me. Without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tal Ben-Shahar. Well, Tal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. I remember picking up uh, your book, Happier, and it was probably about 10 years ago now uh, before I got into studying in a more formal way positive psychology. And for me, it was so eye-opening in terms of possibilities and what I could pursue in the field of positive psychology, but also just eye-opening in a sense that I could use science and evidence-based practice to help me live a happier, healthier life and cultivate well-being. And uh, it was a very influential book in my own life. And so... um, and later led to me getting a master's degree in positive psychology. It was kind of one of those one of those uh, key books for me. So thank you so much for writing it, putting it out there. Well, thank you. Thank you. That, that is why I write. <laughs> and uh, Tal, the way I always start the show, since it is the courageous life as kind of a jumping off point, is to ask if there was some sort of adversity or challenge that you may have faced. And this could be anywhere in your life. It could be early on. It could be as you're just getting started with your career, wherever it may be, but that you feel largely influenced your trajectory in some way uh, of what you're doing professionally today. Anything like that come to mind for you? Uh, sure. You know, that, that, that's an easy question because what started me off in this, uh, on this trajectory, studying happiness, is actually my own unhappiness. So... Um, Specifically, during my second year of college, I found myself doing uh, well academically. I was a computer science major. I was doing well in my classes. I was doing uh, very well in in sports. I played squash. Uh, I was doing quite well socially. You know, everything seemed to be going fine. You know, I checked off all the boxes, and yet I was very unhappy. And it, it dawned on me then that it actually had nothing to do with the external that uh, I had the internal to uh, to blame for my predicament. And I remember waking up one very cold Boston morning, going to my academic advisor and telling her that I'm switching majors. And she said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science and moving over to philosophy and psychology. And she said, why? And I said, because I have two questions. The first question is, why aren't I happy? Second question, how can I become happier? And it's with these two questions that I then went on to get my undergraduate uh, degree, then went off to uh, the other Cambridge across the Atlantic to study education, and then back to Harvard for my PhD, 
all the time focusing on how can I help myself, individuals, couples, organizations, you know, and, and ultimately nations increase levels of well-being. And I must say, in that respect, I haven't really looked back since knowing that this is what uh, I wanted to do. And this is also what, uh, you know, I feel like I, I was meant to do. Oh, I love that. And if we could kind of go to the point in your career, perhaps, where you started teaching, uh, I believe it was the most popular class at Harvard. Is that, am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was. You know, it started off as a, as a small class. Yeah. I had uh, eight students and then two, two dropped out. And, you know, so I had six students my first year. Uh, second year it grew, um, and by, by the third year it was it was the largest course at Harvard with uh, close to 900 students. And the reason why it it, it grew so much was um, was because you know at the end of uh, the year at Harvard every class is evaluated, and you know my class was evaluated like the others, and you know it it, it did pretty well you know in terms of uh, you know students evaluating the scale of one to five, the quality of teaching and the quality of uh, uh, exercises and reading and on and on. But what, what what actually happened was that there's also a space for um, um, anything else you would like to add about the class. So an open question rather than a one to five question. And large number of students put there, this class changed my life. And um, they reported on this in, um, in the evaluation guide, course evaluation guide. And as a result, the following year, it became the largest class at the university. And um, I must say, my intention in creating this class was to make it very practical. You know, so w- whenever I teach, I have, uh, I have uh, three criteria. The first one is it has to be based on rigorous research. You know, my, my class is not a self-help new age class. It's, it's based on, on, on academic uh, research on science. The second is that everything that I teach has to be applied or potentially applied in, in students' lives. So whether it's their lives today or uh, in the future when they are in a, in a long-term relationship or when they're in the workplace, but it has to be applied. And the third criterion is that anything that I teach you, I have to apply in my life, meaning it has to be personal. Now, it doesn't mean I have to master it, but I have to apply it in a, in a serious way in my life. So it's these three criteria that everything that I teach has to has to meet, and therefore the class. First of all, when I talk about something, it's it's authentic because it's mine. You know, I've tried it or am trying it, doing it in my life, and it's uh, it's relevant to their life, and therefore students uh, were, were were attracted to the class. You know, there's nothing. Um, you know, people expect, oh, the largest class, there must be something extraordinary about the way I teach, or 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 you know, some magic. N- none of that. Uh, it's it's the material, it's the content um, that, that comes from positive psychology, from the science of happiness, that is very relevant to students' lives. I love that. There was a quote in your book, The Pursuit of Perfect, where you talk about this idea. I don't have the quote uh, exactly, but essentially you're paraphrasing that, you know, this topic of essentially letting go of perfection or moving from perfectionism to optimalism, as you describe. Uh, or to a state of acceptance of of various aspects of our lives. But that was one of the most deeply kind of personal topics for you or struggles for you, correct anything that's wrong there, and that your students resonated with it so deeply. 
So that's actually what I wanted to explore with you tonight is this idea of perfectionism and letting go, um, partially because I was, I was reviewing a lot of your work, reading back over your books again, and this topic of letting go of perfectionism, I think is particularly relevant right now with everything that's going on with COVID-19 and how it's really shifted our society and how expectations are uh, changing and different things like that and how are people kind of dealing with it. So I, th- I thought it would be a relevant topic. But I think before we do, I did want to ask you, because I know you just said there's no, there's no magic there. You know, people wonder about the most popular class. There's got to be something to it. I have seen you speak, though, multiple times. And I do know that uh, as you write about in your books, that you do take pride in presenting. You enjoy it. You enjoy teaching. You're passionate about these things. So I'm wondering, as somebody who's also passionate about that sort of thing, public speaking and whatnot, if there's any key learnings or lessons for you, particularly around the question of how do you connect or how do you think about connecting with your students or your audience? Um, so more generally, the way um, I look at speaking or, or becoming a, a, a speaker, a presenter, or a better speaker and presenter, I look at it as any other skill that I would uh, attempt to develop. So, you know, when... Um, when I was a squash player, I would stand on court and, you know, hit rails up and down the wall, you know, hundreds, thousands of, of, of times, day in and day out. And that's how I got better. That's how every athlete gets better. You know, um, you, you, know you, you, you even look at the, the, the greatest sports people in the world. Yeah, they have some talent, of course. Um, but what distinguishes them is that they, they get on court earlier and... Uh, uh, and they stay later. You know, there was um, recently read an article about Kobe Bryant, and uh, you know, th- there was uh, a guy who wanted to um, to study him uh, in, in greater depth. And he asked him, you know, can can I come and see you practice? And he said, sure, I'll I'll, I'll be there at four. And then he said to him, but four is the team practice. You know, I want to see you. He said, no, no, I meant four a.m. You know, so at four a.m. he was he, he he was on court, you know, shooting, doing the fundamentals, the basics. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in that. Again, no, once again, no magic, no miracle. It's, you know, the 10,000 hour uh, rule, just spending the time. So I spend a lot of time, not just teaching. I spend a lot of time analyzing. You know, I, I watch myself in, on video for, for years and spend hours doing it. And it's not fun because, you know, usually we are our own uh, most critical yeah, I'm my worst critic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, um, so 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 it's not always easy, but but I did it time and time again and improved, and and I gave talk after talk to you know my my, my wife and 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 my best friends and my family uh, who watch me, and and they are to me what you know what Ralph Waldo Emerson talked about beautiful enemies uh, <laughs> in terms of being beautiful to me and as and challenging. You know that's how I improved and continue to improve uh, over the years. Again, I, I, I don't believe in, in miracles, just like I don't believe in the five easy steps to happiness. I don't believe in the you know, five easy steps to becoming a, a, an effective speaker or a good tennis player or, or a great musician. It, it takes hard work. And, and, and that's what I do now. Couple hard work with a real passion for it, with uh, the fact that, you know, I, I obviously I'm, I strongly believe in the content. You know, I apply to my life. It's, it's authentic and real. And uh, I would hope students connect to my message. 
but again, it, it, it didn't start off that way. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, becoming, I've become a lot more um, cognizant as, you know, as, as I got into my 40s, soon into my, my 50s, about sharing the process with students rather than just outcome. You know, so today students see me, you know, standing in front of, uh, you know, large audiences and delivering a, a lecture, you know, usually doing it well and eloquent and with proficiency. But they didn't see the, the, what it took to get there. You know, my, my, my wife would often tease me and say, you know, you speak like a lobster. And why lobster? Because, you know, I'd be so nervous standing in front of an audience. My hands were always like this, like a lobster. <laughs> uh, so, you know, this is something that I had to work on and get rid of. Uh, but, but, you know, if I don't do this with my hands, what, what do I do with them? And, you know, it was so awkward. And, you know, it takes time to work on, on, on these things or, you know, going in front of an audience. And whenever I would make the, the, the smallest of mistakes, I would, you know, turn red and, and start sweating. And you know, I've had these dozens of these experiences. So I did, you know, so what? And again, the, you know, if there's one message that I communicate to, to my students or to professors who are starting off and, you know, and, and I've been working with, with many of them, helping them become better teachers, it's, um, it, ta- it takes time, effort. Uh, it takes um, uh, reflection coupled with action. One of the things I've heard you say multiple times, and, and uh, this just came to mind, is learn to fail or fail to learn. And you talk about receiving feedback. This is a topic that I'm actually really interested in, is growing our ability to become more effective learners and to stay open to learning. Because for me, in my own experience, sometimes when I receive constructive feedback or negative feedback, like you, I might uh, start to turn red or close off or feel my actual physical body kind of shut down in some sense to sort of reject what's happening a little bit for whatever reason, right? And I'm curious about for you, if there's key learnings, maybe from the science, from the research, or from your own experience about when you've received feedback, particularly when it doesn't jive or resonate with your image of what you imagine to be success or whatever it is, how do you stay open and how do you really learn or become a better learner? Yeah, no, th- this is uh, obviously something that I, I spent a lot of time thinking about and applying with more or less success over the years. So, so there are a couple of issues here. The first issue is you know, what I've come to call rhetorical choices. So what are rhetorical choices? You know, just like a rhetorical question, you know, when a you know, parent asks a child, do you want me to be angry with you? You know, rhetorical question, you know, of course I don't. It's a rhetorical question. And in the same way that there are rhetorical questions, uh, there are also rhetorical choices. Rhetorical choices are choices where it's obvious what choice is right. For example, do you want to be grateful for your life or do you, take, do you want to take your life for granted? You know, easy question. Do you want to be nice to people you care about and who care about you or do you want to be you know, harsh and unpleasant? Now, the thing with rhetorical choices is that we know what choice we want to make when we were asked, and yet we don't make that choice all the time. In fact, when it comes to gratitude, most people uh, do take their lives for granted. Even though if you ask them, would you rather be grateful for your life or take it for granted, it would be an easy choice. Yeah, of course, I want to be appreciative. Similarly, with um, you know, we are often 
uh, harsh and uh, unkind to people we care about and who care about us. Even though if we're asked, you want to be kind or harsh, of course we want to be kind. The thing with rhetorical choices is that the question, the choice is not difficult. The choice is easy. What is missing is the reminder to choose one way or the other. And that's why we do the gratitude exercise, because we want reminders on a regular basis. And that's why I'm a strong believer in general reminders, whether it's a reminder about being kind or a reminder about being grateful or a reminder about accepting our emotions or a reminder about the importance of learn to fail or fail to learn. And uh, I have these reminders, these mantras that uh, I repeat to myself on a daily basis of the values that I want to be reminded of or the choices that I want to be reminded of. And one of them is to be open and to be generous in my response to people who criticize me. Now, not because I don't know that that's the right thing to do. I don't need a reminder to remind me that that is the right thing to do. I need a reminder to do it and to apply it on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, if you repeat a message over and over again, it ultimately uh, sinks in. To, to some extent. And, um, and, and because I remind myself, again, whether it's of the importance of failure, because I know how important failure is, you know, I know all the data, I know also my personal data, where I learned the most. So, so I, I know that, but I still need to be reminded of it constantly. I know the importance of being open to criticism, to embracing rather than rejecting a person who has the, the courage and cares about me enough to tell me um, the, the, the truth. I know the importance of being open to it. I just need to be reminded of it. And I remind myself through uh, digital media, you know, whether I, you know, on my, on my, on my smartphone or um, I have uh, quotes on, on the wall, like learn to fail, fail to learn. And also the people I care about are constant, generous reminders. Curious, so we, if I can drill down a little bit and get even more practical, you talked about the importance of practices and, and getting really practical in your teachings. Uh, when I think about reminders, I think about reminders beforehand. So particularly if I know I'm going to have a conversation where I might receive feedback, right. there's a reminder to stay open or whatever it is to learn, et cetera, before. And then there's in the moment, right? And after. So I'm wondering for you, if you receive feedback that might be unexpected or unplanned, like you didn't know it was coming and you're in the moment, or just even right afterwards, is there specifics about how you remind yourself in those two instances? Yeah, so first of all, when, when it happens and you're in a hot state, so to speak, um, it's very difficult to actually remember, and it's certainly difficult to remind yourself to remember. So what does that mean? That means we need to be prepared in advance. What does that mean? It means you know, like a, it means like preparation for any other uh, activity, uh, for any other uh, activity where there are surprises. For example, you go on a tennis sport. You don't know if the serve is going to be to your forehand or backhand, uh, you know, a spin or or you know, a flat serve. You have to be prepared for you know whatever comes. And uh, which is why you practice for many hours before, you know, day in and day out, responding to the different serves, being surprised 
the same thing with you know being prepared for life. You need to pre- you need to to prepare in advance, which means the reminders have to come not just before you go and have a conversation, but on a regular daily basis. You know, so uh, you know, I'll give you a specific example. One of the mantras that I repeat to myself over and over again, and which is especially critical for me when I teach, comes from the work of uh, David Schnarch. David Schnarch's book, Passionate Marriage, is uh, certainly the most important book I ever read on relationships and uh, one of the most important books I've read, period. And one of his ideas there is that if you want to improve relationships, you have to, rather than just seek to validate and be validated, you have to seek to know and to be known. To know and to be known. And uh, that phrase resonated from, from the second I, I read it. It resonated in the context of my relationship, my romantic relationship with my wife. Uh, but it also resonated in, in the context of my relationship with my students. Because if I go on stage with a desire to be validated, that is a very different mindset than if I go on stage with a desire to be known. In other words, if I go on stage and I want this, I want to share with my students what I know, what I care about, what I'm so passionate about, very different mindset and heart set than going on stage and saying, I really want them to like me. And mm-hmm. um, now that doesn't negate the fact that I want my students to like me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm human. We all want to be liked. However, if the primary message that's playing and replaying, replaying in my mind is to be known, then, uh, I go on stage feeling much more comfortable and much more passionate about what I'm uh, about to do. Much less stress, much more excitement. So before every um, every lecture, you know, this morning I was uh, I was I was lecturing online to a, a large audience. I was I was stressed. I reminded myself, be known. I'm going to share to express um, what I care about so much. Be known. So that's before a lecture. And in general, even on days when I don't lecture, again, right here, my daily reminders, one of them is remember to know and to be known. Tal, I love that. This whole idea of kind of the, what we're seeking, right? When we are, whether it's external validation from an audience, if that's my primary intention or end goal, going on stage as a presenter uh, is very different than what you're describing to be known, right, or to allow myself to be seen in some way. And I'm going to use that a little bit as a segue, I think, to talk a little bit about perfectionism here and kind of move our our conversation into this. And I think in your book, and, and again, you can correct anything that's wrong here, I think perfectionism, at least in my experience, just speaking experientially here, my perfectionism is often there's a motivation behind it that's about external validation. I want to be seen as perfect. I want to be seen as having it all together. I want to be seen as performing at the highest level, whatever it is. And then uh, you talk about moving, actually moving away from perfectionism is a key aspect of living a meaning, more meaningful, optimal, fulfilling life. And I thought this is particularly timely right now because essentially in the past, six weeks, two months, the world has really changed in so many different ways. And one of the things I hear coming up in conversations over and over and over again is a struggle with adapting expectations 
uh, or internal standards to the new environment, the new normal that we're facing. There's an article that just came out, maybe you've seen it in the New York Times, maybe it came out a couple of weeks ago, and it's been kind of going viral. Essentially, the idea being, I think it was titled, Stop Trying to Be So Productive, right? Like allowing yourself permission to kind of accept the new reality and embrace it and allow yourself to change things up a little bit. I promise this will come back to a, a question. It's a long-winded intro, but I found this passage in your book so poignant. And I love your writing. And so I just wanted to, if you'll indulge me, just read a quick quote here from the book. You say, active acceptance is about recognizing things as they are, and then choosing the course of action we deem appropriate and worthy of ourselves is about recognizing that at every moment in our life, we have a choice to be afraid and yet to act courageously, feel jealous and yet to act benevolently, to accept being human and act with humanity. There's a lot in there. And so in opening this conversation about perfectionism, perhaps we could just start with defining what it is we're talking about. How do you think about perfectionism? How do you define that? So, you know, the, the idea behind perfectionism is complex because perfectionism is not just a simple uh, right versus wrong choice. You know, there's also good perfectionism. You know, when uh, very often when people are asked on their job interviews, so what are your weaknesses? And, uh, and they say, oh, it's, I'm a perfectionist. Um, <laughs> I do things so well. I'm so responsible, just too much sometimes. You know, that's not bad. Uh, you know, that, that's not a weakness. Being responsible, being hardworking, being conscientious. I mean, these are all are great characteristics and, and traits. The problematic perfectionism or what, you know, the literature, what they call maladaptive as opposed to adaptive perfectionism is an intense fear of failure, a, fear of, a debilitating fear of failure, a fear of failure that uh, prevents us from trying, putting, from being our best self, a perfectionism that leads us, a fear of failure that leads us to be defensive because we don't want others to see that maybe we're not perfect or to highlight that fact. And, and this kind of perfectionism is, is really hurtful. You know, it's not a, it's not a strength disguised as, as, as a weakness or as a problem. Where does it come from? It comes from um, the, the notion, the, the, the belief that to be good means to be good all the time that to succeed means to succeed all the time. It's about seeing outcome rather than journey. It's about seeing an end product rather than the steps necessary to reach that end product. And we pay a very high price for perfection. You know, so um, you know, I mentioned earlier that I got into this field of happiness studies because of my own unhappiness. Well, I started studying perfectionism because uh, because of my perfectionism and not because it was good or fun because it really hurt it hurt me emotionally it hurt my relationships uh, the people who are dearest to me it ultimately also led to suboptimal behavior whether it was in sports or or in school because you know i i could do better if i didn't have this intense fear of failure and and the thing is that this perfectionism so i wrote it because you know it was something that i cared about and i and i thought that you know there are other people like me that but I didn't just I didn't know just how many uh, perfectionists are out there 
And again, perfectionism is on a continuum. So it's not, you know, zero one, you're either a perfectionist or you're not. But there are many people who are on the, uh, you know, if you have a continuum who are very close to the, uh, the perfectionist extreme, mm-hmm. who struggle and suffer and who uh, very often also um, impose pain on unnecessary pain on other people who are, who are close to them. It's very often the people close to us who are uh, affected by our perfectionism. And you might be a perfectionist in certain areas of your life. I think about Carol Dweck talking about a growth mindset here and how sometimes that gets kind of generalized or misinterpreted to, oh, I just have a growth mindset or I have a fixed mindset. In reality, it's, it's much more nuanced. I might have a growth mindset in one specific topic area, area of interest or aspect of my life. And it seems like from what you're saying, um, that perfectionism acts in much the same way that it might be, you know, I have more perfectionist tendencies in this one, like maybe at work or on a certain project as opposed exactly. to something else. It's, it's in those areas that we care about most. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think of, uh, you're familiar with the Gallup Strength Finder. So, and one of, the, one of the strengths on the Gallup Strength Finder is competitiveness. Which for me is very high. You know, I've always been very competitive in in, in sports, in, in just about everything that I do, and you know, it's something that I that I thrive on and enjoy. And uh, you know, I lo- I love competition. I love watching sports. I love participating in sports. You know, and, and I look at my look at my behavior um, over the years in, in in two different areas. One is squash. You know, squash was you know I remember at the age of sixteen actually having the following thought, saying to myself if I'm saying. What am I going to do with my life when I no longer have squash? And I thought, you know, I would play, you know, professionally till, till the age of 30. And, and then I would have to become, uh, you know, a coach. And uh, because squash was the only thing, mm-hmm. you know, other than girls at the age, you know, <laughs> of course, but other than the only thing I cared about. So I was that passionate about it. And perfectionism reigned supreme when it came to squash, eventually, by the way, ending my career. Because I, I got injured, and um, as, as a result of overdoing it, of not taking gradual steps, but uh, going from um, you know zero to a hundred, and I paid a very dear price for it. Not to mention the fact that even though I was very passionate about squash, I rarely enjoyed playing mm-hmm. because it, I really struggled and, and even suffered because of my perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I compare this to another area where I am very competitive. And this is, uh, you know, I haven't told many people this, so breaking news. Um, you know, backgammon. You know, I'm a very good backgammon player, and uh, you know, I want to, you know, want a backgammon competition, and you know, I'm very competitive with my friends. But am I perfectionistic there? Of course not. You know, I have fun there, and we laugh, and we, you know, say things that you know shouldn't be repeated elsewhere when we play. You know, it's it's it's. I see it as a game. I never saw squash as a game. It was a profession from the time I was 11. So I'm perfectionist in, in the area that I care about most. I'm not perfectionist in an area that, you know, yeah, you know, I'm competitive, but I'm not perfectionist when it comes to backgammon. And similar with relationships, you know, I had re- my perfectionism came out in my most important relationships, not in a relationship that I, you know, I didn't care that much about, which is why it's so urgent to, to deal with perfectionism, to, and when I say deal with it, it's not to get rid of perfectionism. You know, Karen Horney back in the 1930s, I mean, she was, uh, she was Freud's student and, you know, became one of the greatest uh, experts on neuroses. And she says, neuroses never go away. 
they become weaker, they become manageable, they never go away. And in the same way, perfectionism, which is a form of neurosis, it, it, it doesn't go away, but it becomes more manageable. And today, you know, I can look at my perfectionism and uh, obviously embrace the, the, the upside of it, you know, taking responsibility, working hard and so forth, and better deal with, not master, but better deal with the, the hurtful, maladaptive perfectionism. Absolutely. And I love that. I think that's very hopeful, you know, to, to know that somebody like yourself who has um, spent years studying this, uh, both experientially, but also looking at the science and the research and kind of going through so many of the practices that there, you know, that you're human too, and, and that it is a practice and we can get better at it and develop it almost like our ability, like a muscle to kind of deal with it. We can strengthen that over time. I, like you, am a big fan of the practical. I remember sitting in school early on, and this was actually one of my reasons for getting into positive psychology was I, I wanted a lot of the how. I wanted that, okay, yeah, living a good life sounds great. How do I do that? How do I live with more meaning? How do I better handle perfectionism? And I remember being told in school, be kind or be patient or whatever. And then there wasn't any instruction for how to do that. And so I think where we could maybe take the conversation next a little bit is into the how. And what I found particularly helpful in your writing, which I thought was so, it just resonated so strongly and gave me a clear idea for how to move forward with managing my own perfectionism was around your definition. And you talked about four components and moving from rejecting things like failure and emotions and things like that to a place of acceptance. So could you elaborate on that? Talk a little bit sure. about that. So um, th th there are a few areas in perfectionism. The first one is the intense and debilitating fear of failure. Then we have the um, rejection of uh, any uh, unpleasant emotion. So this is the, you know, if, if the fear of failure is about the, the refusal to, to accept that life is about ups and downs in terms of uh, you know, success and failure. Rejection of emotion is about the refusal to accept that life is ups, there are ups and downs in terms of our emotions. And finally, it's also re rejection of, of anything good that happens because you know if, if, if it's good, okay, been there, done that, I can move on and fix what's not working. You know, let me not uh, uh, remain, let me not rest on my laurels because that is, uh, that is harmful. Because I need to work on the things that are not working. You know, no time to waste. So these it's are the real, three. The it's three a real main. shame because you work so hard for something and then you don't yeah, <laughs> reap the rewards or save. I remember being in uh, grad school, and I bring this up because it's a past student of yours. Adam Grant was uh, a professor in the MAP program when I was there at UPenn, and he said something which maybe he learned, you know, from your teachings or, or so on and so forth. But he said one of the things most people can get better at is being a more gracious receiver, getting better at taking things in. And it was around his book, Give and Take. But it, you talk about this at length in your book and accepting success, you know, in a variety of different ways. And what a shame if we don't do that. I know, like you're describing, I'll have a tendency to just, oh, I finished this big project and okay, that's done. What's next? Without space. And that can be a lot to lose, I feel like. Yes, exactly. Next. And um 
there's a lot to lose there on on so many levels. You know, what the the antidote. You know, you you talk about or you ask for uh, practical tips, tools. The antidote to this taking success for granted is appreciation. You know, probably the the area that's most researched. You know, to to the level of it becoming a cliche is gratitude. And um, the reason why expressing gratitude is important is because it's about taking time, taking time to to uh, to savor, to to appreciate. And when we do that, good things happen. You know, my favorite word in English, in fact, is appreciate. And, and the reason is because it has two meanings. The first meaning of the word appreciate is to say thank you for something, not to take things for granted. The second meaning of the word appreciate is to grow in value, as the economy or money in the bank appreciates. Now, the two meanings of the word appreciate are connected. And again, today we have the signs to show that. They're connected in that when you appreciate the good, the good appreciates. When we appreciate um, the good in our lives, when we appreciate our success, when we do not take it for granted, we have more of it. Unfortunately, also, the opposite is the case. In other words, when we do not appreciate uh, the good, when we take the good for granted, the good depreciates and we have less of it. And what you often find with successful people, and the role model here you know, has to be none other than uh, Oprah Winfrey, is that when you appreciate the good things in your life, you, you actually become more, more successful, not to mention happier, not to mention healthier, which are well-researched um, outcomes of gratitude. Oh, I love that. And the, the final piece, so you talked about rejecting failure, rejecting painful or difficult emotions, rejecting success. And the opposite of all of this is moving to a place of acceptance of all these things. And, and maybe we can unpack a little bit of what acceptance means. There's also this final piece, which you mentioned in the book, which is around rejecting reality. Could you talk about that a little bit, what you mean by that? You know, um, ever since the, the book, The Secret, came out, people have been uh, asking me this question. So tell what is the secret to happiness? And uh, my response is always, is always, come on, you know, I'm not some, uh, you know, new age self-help guy, you know, I'm, I'm an academic. Uh, there's no secret to happiness. There are three secrets to happiness. <laughs> uh, the first secret to happiness is reality. The second secret to happiness is reality. You want to guess the, the third secret? Might, might it be reality? <laughs> Do squat. Exactly. So why is that? You know, Jack Welch, when he was picked as the, uh, he just passed away recently in, um, in the year 2000, he was picked by Fortune magazine as the CEO of the 20th century. Uh, you know, he led uh, General Electric, Electric to double-digit growth for 20 plus years and uh, really a legendary CEO. And he was asked, what advice do you have for managers? You know, whether you're managing a, you know, a small startup or, you know, a, or a large organization. And he said his answer was learn to face reality. And learning to face reality is important when you become a manager. It's uh, for becoming a, a good manager. It's also important for leading a, a full and fulfilled life. And accepting reality means accepting that there are hardships and difficulties. And it also means that there are um, things that are worth savoring and that there are important lessons there. It's about seeing the, you know, the, the whole picture. Uh, in fact, the whole field of positive psychology uh, was introduced by Professor Marty Seligman in order 
for people to be more aware of reality because historically psychologists have only looked at the negatives or primarily looked at the negative um, at the depression and uh, anxiety, anger, and, and so on. And, and this is very important. These are very important traits and characteristics to study. But why ignore an important part of reality? Why ignore uh, love and flourishing and uh, joy and gratitude? Uh, these are also uh, important, invaluable parts of reality. And again, if you don't appreciate them, if you ignore them, they depreciate. You have less of them. So it's about expanding our uh, horizon. Not, uh, positive psychology didn't come to replace uh, psychopathology. It came to supplement what we generally study in, in, in psychology classes. So it's about reality, reality, reality. Now, in reality, there are things that we can appreciate. If we reject success, it means we're not facing reality. In reality, there are painful emotions. If we reject painful emotions, we're not accepting reality. In reality, if we put ourselves on the line, if we go out to the world, uh, we will fail. Ignoring that, rejecting that is about rejecting reality. And this is why the acceptance of reality is the, the fundamental uh, premise of, a, of the, the life of the optimist, which is a, a full and fulfilling life. Do you see any link between moving from rejection to acceptance? So if I move to accepting reality, do you see a link between that and courage at all? Very much so. You know, the um, courage is not about not having fear. Courage is about having fear and going ahead anyway. Now, interestingly, what, what the research very clearly shows is that people who do not acknowledge their fear, uh, people who reject their fear, saying something to, you know, to the tune of, you know, I, I shouldn't be fearful, you know, I'm, 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 I'm strong, I, you know, very often it's associated with the masculine traits, uh, you know, me afraid, of course not. And people who reject fear are actually less likely to act courageously. And the paradox is that people who accept fear and say, okay, it's natural. It's, 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 it's a human characteristic who give themselves the permission to be human. They're much more likely to, to act courageously, to take the fear along with them and act as they deem most appropriate. By the way, this, this um, pattern doesn't just apply to, to fear. It applies to any painful emotion. For instance, uh, people who um, don't accept the fact that they get angry they are much more likely to explode. They're much, much less likely to act benevolently and kindly. It's when we accept anger and say, okay, I'm, I'm human. I accept the emotion. I can still choose whether I act on it or not. They're the people who have the most control over their, their behavior. Same with envy, jealousy. If uh, I reject envy or jealousy because you know, I'm not the kind of person who ought to feel that way, I'm much less likely to behave generously, benevolently, appropriately towards other people. If I accept jealousy again, as, as, and give myself the permission to be human, I'm much more likely to have control over my behavior. You know, I've become more, over the years, I've become more and more of a fan of acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT ACT. And um, it's, it's a very, very powerful uh, therapeutic approach. And, and essentially what it says is, as its name suggests, the first step is accept. 
accept the full range of, uh, of human emotions, whatever it is, whether it's anxiety, whether it's anger, whether it's sadness, whether it's inadequacy, whether it's uh, ingratitude, whatever the emotion is, accept it. There's no good, there are no good or bad emotions. Emotions are simply a part of nature, like the law of gravity. There's no good or bad law of gravity. It simply is. So it's about radical acceptance in, uh, in the words of Tara Brock. It's about radically accepting any and all emotions. And then, this is where the commitment part, committing to the most appropriate course of action, committing to uh, our values to a way of life that we think is valuable, is uh, meaningful. And this way, we, there's no need to be concerned about the, 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 the painful emotions that are there. Again, part of nature, part of being human. Let me still choose and be uh, my, my, you know, my best self, put my, my, my best foot forward. And, uh, and again, the paradox is that when I accept, truly accept the emotion, I'm much more likely to act generously, benevolently, kindly, courageously. Can you say a little bit, because that's been true in my experience, and part of the reason you talk about the word, you highlight the word choose there. I think about choice. I think about when I have the space and the courage to accept and welcome in difficult emotions and get to know them better. Um, one, one of the things I find is that oftentimes the actual experience of the emotion is less scary than the idea of the emotion. So the actual reality is, is less scary. So that's kind of one piece. But the other piece is that the better I get to know something, the more I can kind of recognize it. Oh, this is fear. Oh, this is sadness. Oh, this is grief. Oh, whatever it might be. And then I can recognize it and maybe come from a place of choice, but I don't know how to articulate that very well. Is there a reason that you can kind of identify why the acceptance promotes this greater choice? You know, in, in Buddhism and more and more so in, um, in the scientific literature, there is talk of uh, two levels of suffering. The first level of suffering are the, you know, the, our direct experiences, you know, suffering because uh, I just saw something on, you know, on the news uh, or suffering because uh, my book was rejected or because I had an argument with uh, my partner. You know, these are, these are unpleasant uh, events, you know, some more, more than others, and they lead to a dis-ease, an uncomfortable feeling, uh, pain. So that's the first level, and it's inevitable. We all experience it by virtue of being human. However, then there is a second level of suffering. The second level of suffering comes when we reject the first level of suffering. Why? Because um, when I reject a natural emotion, that emotion doesn't go away. It simply intensifies. It grows stronger. And then it has more of a hold on me. And what I'm doing when I simply... you know. It, Again, to use uh, some Buddhist language, when I simply observe the emotion, when I become a witness to my experience, and uh, and then I may recognize, oh, I fear, or uh, you know, I I envy, what's up, and uh, and observe it with what um, Professor Williams from Oxford calls observe it with friendly curiosity. 
I love that phrase, friendly curiosity. When I can observe these emotions in that way, they don't uh, intensify. They remain at the first level rather than climb to the second level. And moreover, they don't overstay their welcome. They flow through me. They, they come in and they leave. Oh, I love that. I know we're almost out of time. There was one final question that, that I wanted to ask you, which actually a number of people have asked me about around perfectionism. And I ask too, which is there's another fear we haven't talked about. I think you've offered so much so beautifully here tonight. This final piece is kind of this fear that if I let go or if I accept or if I move away from some of these perfectionistic tendencies, right. I'm going to lose my edge. I'm, I'm sure you hear this. I've heard this all the time. Right? Like I'm going to lose motivation. I'm going to lose my fire. I'm going to lose some of my drive. I may not be as successful. Um, how do you respond to that, either from your experience or the research or, or both? So, yeah, so let, let, me, let me address this from both perspectives, my experience and, and the research. The perfectionistic mindsets could actually lead to more success in the short term, that is. It's not sustainable. So to, to give you a, uh, you know, a personal example, for me, it was um, all or nothing when it came to squash. So you know, I, I graduated from high school and moved to England and joined a club there where the world champion was training. Why? Because I wanted to be a world champion. But for me, it wasn't about taking the step-by-step journey towards becoming a, a world champion or a top player. It was doing as he did. And I started immediately training like him. And I improved very quickly. And I climbed up the world ranking. Uh, and then I got injured. And then I got injured again until ultimately the injuries uh, ended my career prematurely. So in the short term, I was more successful and I could have said to myself, look, it's because of my perfectionist tendency, my all or nothing. Uh, my Either I train like the world champion or I don't train at all. It's thanks to that that I improved so quickly. That is true, not sustainable. Same in school. You know, my perfectionist tendencies led me to, you know, pay very close attention to every paper and every paper had to be perfect and I had to read every word that the professor assigned. And when I did that, I actually performed well on an exam, but I couldn't perform well on 20 exams. I just didn't have enough hours during the day. And it also uh, meant that I slept less, uh, which hurt my academic performance, uh, not to mention uh, made me very unhappy. And when I started along my journey away from perfectionism towards optimalism, What happened is that, you know, here and there, I I had, you know, some courses where I probably could have done a little bit better. But overall, I did so much better in school. Overall, I did so much better in in my career. And most importantly, I was so much happier. I became so much happier as a student. That's when my real passion for learning uh, emerged. That's when my intrinsic motivation became so much more dominant than the extrinsic motivation. And again, both are necessary for sustained effort. Both are necessary for for success. The question is to to what degree. And intrinsic motivation uh, became a lot stronger once I started letting go of uh, my perfectionist tendencies. So both in terms of quality of experience, both in terms of long-term success, shifting from uh, maladaptive to adaptive, perfectionism or from perfectionism to optimalism is the way to go. Well, it's been such a privilege to have the time to sit with you tonight. Thank you so much for offering all of your insight and wisdom and, you know, practical 
things that people might experiment with in their own life and a real pleasure. So I want to say thank you. I want to give you space too to, if people want to find out more about your work, your books, the latest projects that you're working on that you might be really excited about, where is the best place for them to follow you or find out more? The project that I've been uh, recently most involved with and has been my passion, my intrinsic motivation is uh, creating the Happiness Studies Academy, where uh, I offer uh, online courses in happiness studies, which is looking at, at the good life from the perspective of psychology, philosophy, uh, history, literature, film, and bringing these disciplines to bear on, on the question, how can um, I become happier? How can I help others become happier? So I've been very excited about sharing uh, these ideas. I'm working on a book that uh, brings together different disciplines and and what they have to teach us about leading a full and fulfilling life. That's fantastic. Thank you so much again for being here. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you for all the work that you do, um, bringing um, very important ideas from the field of uh, positive psychology and making them accessible. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Courageous Life. I'd like to extend special thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Matt Donner, for all of the incredible behind-the-scenes work he does to make this show sound great. He's also responsible for composing the original music that you hear at the beginning and the end of every episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show and conversation, please do share with friends, because I believe that courage is contagious. And while you're at it, if you happen to be on iTunes, make sure you click the subscribe button. Or if you feel so compelled, leave a positive review. It encourages me to keep going and also helps others to find a valuable show amidst the many podcasts that are out there. Until next time, this is Joshua Steinfeld with The Courageous Life.